You're listening to a DM podcast. That it's pretty clear that had she not gotten the transplant when she did, she probably wouldn't have lived much longer. It was sort of at that dire straits point where she had had so many hospital admissions, so many bouts of pneumonia that we were sort of starting to think that, you know, next time she gets pneumonia, that's probably going to be it. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. In podcast number 25, we met the lovely Danny Horton, who was in search for a kidney after her own kidneys failed at the age of 21. And in episode 46, we checked in on Danny after she'd been the happy recipient of a donated kidney and was on the rocky road to recovery. The Royal Flying Doctors Service has transported Danny more than eight times to date to tertiary hospital from her home on the remote coastline of South Australia. Those two episodes spurred Casey Miller to contact me as she wants to tell the story of her mother, Sarah Watson, who was inflicted with a genetic disease that stopped her lungs from working properly. And that resulted in her also looking for a major organ donation. Casey's here to tell us about it. Hello, Casey. Hi. Look, tell me a little bit about you, Casey. I know you're a young mum with a two-year-old and that you're based in Adelaide. Would you mind telling me a little bit, give me a snapshot of your life? Yeah, so we live um, in Adelaide's western suburbs, so down near the beach, um, myself, my husband and my little girl, Olive. And, yeah, I just really wanted to talk to you about my mum, Sarah, and tell you a bit about her journey and her story and the impact that RFDS had. Fantastic. Did you grow up in Adelaide? I did, yeah. So it was just me, mum and dad and, yeah, the only child life. I just had my parents to hang out with. (laughs) Did they both work? They did, yeah. They both were full-time. My mum worked full-time from when I was really, really young and I was in daycare full-time and that sort of thing. So they always have worked full-time and showed me the importance of working full-time and working hard. What did they do? Well, mum, one of the amazing things about mum is she grew up in the 60s and 70s and she was almost, you know, we like to joke that she was a bit of a trailblazer. She was a forklift driver. She worked on cars. She worked at Holden's at the factory um, doing those sort of male-dominated jobs. And so we like to joke that she was a trailblazer of her time. <laughs> oh, she probably was. Well, that's brilliant. And what did your dad do? He works for the local council doing fire prevention and animal management and all sorts of things. Okay. Now, your mum had severe asthma while you were a child. Did that inhibit what you could do as a family and how active she could be? It probably did with her, but um, my dad was sort of made up for that inactivity-wise. He's a very sporty guy, so he made up for that sort of thing and obviously we 
were able to do other things with mum and do lots of craft. She was a really crafty sort of person, always doing DIY things at home and stuff like that. So it didn't, you know, impact my life in that way. Mm. Now, managing a chronic health condition, it's always challenging for the patient and sometimes also to those closest to them. Um, Did that condition impact you as you grew older as a child? I think the thing with mum's condition, she, you know, we thought it was severe asthma. We then, we later learned what it actually was. Um, and it obviously did get worse. And when I was, you know, in my late years of primary school, her health started to decline. And we sort of noticed that she did seem out of breath a lot more and she was struggling to keep weight on and that sort of thing and was sort of unwell a lot. And then lots of testing led us to find out that she actually wasn't having these problems because of asthma. What did the doctors say was the problem? So she was diagnosed with a condition called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is a condition that you obviously have some kind of deficiency that prevents your lungs from being able to operate at their full capacity and health, I suppose. Um, And so she was impacted in the way that she um, got emphysema. You know, she was a smoker earlier in her life, but doctors sort of told us that had she not been a smoker, she still would have eventually struggled with emphysema or other lung disease um, due to this condition. So does the condition um, actually reduce the capacity for the lungs to function properly or does it, I'm just trying to understand what that genetic condition actually does to the lungs. The way I understand it is that it just makes your lungs more susceptible to conditions like emphysema and damage to the lungs. Mm that then reduces your lung capacity and, you know, that's a vicious cycle of when your lung capacity goes down, you get sick more, then you... You get scarring of the lungs and then when you get scarring of the lungs, the lungs, yeah, are more susceptible and it just sort of becomes this bit of a a catch-22. That makes sense. So when did things really get worse for your mum? At what point? How old were you then? So I was, I think I was about 13. So I was in year eight, um, just started high school and she for a few years had been struggling and her weight was the main problem. And I remember her being ill a lot and doctors not really being able to figure out why she couldn't gain weight and why she was continuing to lose weight. And it got to a point where her doctor sort of said, we're going to admit you to a private hospital and we're not going to leave until we figure out what's going on. And there was days and days of testing and finally they diagnosed her with alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And it was almost an instant thing that the only real solution here is that you're going to need a lung transplant. So does that mean that it's just the lungs that are impacted or if you have that condition, can it also impact other organs in the body? I think other people it can sort of manifest in a way that it impacts your maybe liver or digestive system, but for mum it was just lungs. Right. Essentially then her lungs are determined to be beyond repair and so she needs to get a lung transplant. Now, when we were interviewing Danny, the wonderful Danny Horton, obviously when you have kidney failure, you can have a kidney transplant from a donor, either live or deceased, and that can add to your already not functioning other kidney. But you can't do that with lungs, can you? Is it, a, is it an all or nothing? I mean, you don't, I, d- I presume you can't do a lung transplant with one lung. I presume it's got to be both. I believe you can have a single lung transplant if you only have one damaged lung, I believe. Wow. But in mum's case, it was definitely double and obviously that has to come from a donor that is no longer living and who has chosen to donate their organs. Right. 
Was that something your mum was comfortable with in terms of, you know, like it's a pretty scary proposition. How was she feeling? I remember it being firstly when it was first mentioned, even though it was like a, look, this is pretty much the only option. It was still, uh, oh, maybe, maybe there's another way, but there wasn't. And she did struggle with that. And she was also a very petite woman and her <laughs> amazing professor who, you know, did amazing things. He made the mistake of saying, oh, you're so tiny. We might need to, it might have to be a child donor. And so. <laughs> Obviously, that was uh, that made that really hard for her. Yeah. Um, luckily, her donor wasn't a child we know because that was obviously something that she desperately wanted to know to help her process. Yeah. So, yeah, she did struggle with that, but it became clear immediately that that was the only option. Was it a long wait to, to get a donor or to, to get some lungs that would be suitable? So it ended up, ta- it takes firstly to even get on the list, the waiting list took months and months of testing. We think it was maybe six to nine months of testing. Um, and that's just full body analysis, just in case you have some underlying condition that would rule you out. Or if you maybe they discover you have some kind of cancer mm. that is going to rule you out for having a lung transplant. So that took probably six to nine months. And then she was on the wait list for 10 months. Wow. Now, if she hadn't gotten a transplant, if if either she had chosen not to or it had been determined that she was ineligible for whatever other reason, what was the, you know, prognosis as far as the doctors were concerned? I, it was never really a conversation because it was she sort of decided that she was going to go that route and we were just going to try and make it happen. Um, but I, her health deteriorated so rapidly in that time that it's pretty clear that had she not gotten the transplant when she did, she probably wouldn't have lived much longer. It was sort of at that dire straits point where she had had so many hospital admissions, so many bouts of pneumonia that we were sort of starting to think that, you know, next time she gets pneumonia, that's probably going to be it. So, you know, that she probably had two years to live from being diagnosed maybe if she hadn't had the transplant. Wow. How are you as a, as a young teenager full of hormones at <laughs> the age of 13 and 14, how are you coping with this? I mean, you're an only child and, look, I, I don't have anything against only childs. I'm just saying that you don't have siblings that you can go and bounce things off, you know. You've only got your dad. Was it really hard for you in that in that way? I think it was hard and it was hard to sort of be the – kid at school with the sick parent that everyone knows is sick. Um, So that was, you know, it was hard. But also I think we, my dad and I especially have a really, really good relationship and he really supported me in that time to make sure, even though obviously we were all supporting mum and we were all making sure she was okay, he made sure that I was okay and made sure that we did things to support me in that time as well. So it was hard, obviously, and, you know, mum had medical episodes in that time where she stopped breathing and, you know, we had to call ambulances and things like that and, you know, that was traumatic. But I don't know, it just I think when you're young as well, you just do what you have to do and you just push through. So you'd be at home with your mum. She's waiting for a lung transplant. She's waiting for a donor and she would just stop breathing. What would they do? Like how, how would they deal with that? That was two episodes. One of them I was home alone with her. And then another time she was, luckily she was actually at her GP's office. So that was great. 
because she had the doctor on hand. Um, and when it was just us, um, yeah, she was just laying in bed. I heard a strange noise. She had oxygen 24-7. We had an oxygen machine in the house with a, I don't even know, 10-metre-long little oxygen cord that just trailed around the house. <laughs> so we always knew where she was. And I heard a weird noise. My dog ran in to check on her. I went in and it was clear that she wasn't properly breathing and was sort of gasping and couldn't breathe and wasn't responded responsive at all so I had called an ambulance and they came in and you know were just trying to get her breathing again I think I don't really know what they were doing to be honest because it wasn't CPR it wasn't at that point yet um but it was you know she was in intensive care for a few days after that but that's at the that's how dire it was getting you know we were having Mm. starting to have episodes like that that's horrible yeah so it's lucky she got the transplant when she did yeah so, yeah, you'd always be listening for the sound of the oxygen tank and looking for where the, looking for where the oxygen um, trail is taking you. <laughs> for, where's mum? Yeah, where's mum? What's she doing? Is she okay? Wow. Yeah. Okay, so you had to wait 10 months and then finally the word came. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. What was the family told about this donation were were they able to tell you any information about who the donor was or about the state of the lungs or about the location or what were you told I mean I I was probably shielded from those conversations a bit because I, I think I was probably 15 and it was a whirlwind first of all because you know we're in Adelaide lungs were in Sydney it's a big deal we were told that there was a pair of lungs there was a slight mismatch there's a certain thing that it doesn't really, it's if they have the virus or you don't have the virus, you know, it's little tiny things. So it was fine. It wasn't a child, which mum was, you know, thrilled about. I think that's pretty much all they were told. It's just, we've got a pair of lungs that are a match. Do you want them? Let's do it. It's this tiny window, right? It's a tiny window of time because you've got to keep yeah. the lungs alive and you've got to get the patient to the lungs. So it's it's this window that's closing. Do you remember the the day or night when that call came through and when your mum was suddenly being rushed off to the to the airport? So it's a funny story because I was at work at a fast food restaurant and mum was home alone, gets the phone call, can't contact dad, no one can contact dad. <laughs> Dad's at Baker's Delight um, <laughs> buying bread. As one <laughs> Not does. looking at his phone. Yeah, phone on silent. So we have a family friend that lives maybe 15 houses down the street and this another wonderful petite little woman with, you know, crazy curly hair. So mum phoned her and said, there's lungs, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And so this friend, Trish, sprinted down the street to run down and help mum 
because of course we had 10 months, but no one was organized. Nobody had bags packed. I think mum maybe had a bag packed. Dad, when they finally got hold of him, ran home, had to pack a bag. And so they're waiting on him. And then um, an ambulance arrived and took them to the airport. This whole time I was at work at this fast food restaurant and then they phoned me and told me and then the family, that same family friend picked me up and I spent some time with them. And then, yeah, mum and dad were taken by ambulance to the airport, which dad recalls as a very calm and not fast drive at all. No lights and sirens, just very chilled out drive. And then they got to the airport where the Royal Flying Doctor was waiting. Wow. And so your mum was then bundled up into the plane. Now, she had lung issues to such a degree as you've already communicated that she was stopping breathing, you know, from time to time. She was Her lungs were very, very weak. So what did they have to do to get her to Sydney? Because when you get into a plane and you go up to altitude, it puts pressure on lungs um, or there's a pressurised cabin. And so how did that work with your mum in that condition? It's like a bit of a con- point of contention at this point um, that some – I remember them talking about having to fly at a lower altitude or something like that because of the state that she was in. But Dad now doesn't remember if that happened, so I don't know. Dad says that it was, again, it was very calm and just – chilled out and you know they were just chatting they had the nurse who was obviously taking care of them and monitoring mum but it was all just really uneventful and they just felt really safe and really supported and taken care of especially by the nurse who sat with them for the whole flight and really made sure that they were comfortable okay so then they arrive in sydney and it's all systems go let's get in the surgery and get it done how how long do you know how long the surgery took to to do such a major organ transplant? So dad thinks that it took probably about eight or nine hours until he was sort of, so I don't know exactly how long the surgery took, but it was about eight or nine nine hours from when she went in to when he got to then sort of see her a little bit through the window. But even from the second they got to the hospital, again, after apparently a very calm and slow ambulance ride, they, as soon as they got to the hospital, they were starting anti-rejection drugs. They were prepping her from the second she got there. And then she ended up having surgery. It was really late at night. Um, I remember she phoned me at like 10 p.m. And I was like, have you had your surgery already? What's going on? How are you talking to me? But she hadn't even gone in yet. And it was late at night. So they operated throughout the early hours of the night. And yeah, probably eight or nine hours. And then yeah, she was out and dad got to see her. When you spoke to her just before she went in, how was she? Was she worried? Was she was she calm? Was she reassuring you as her daughter? Like how was she responding? Because there's always risk with these major surgeries. What was mm-hmm. what was her attitude to you? I remember that it was just a really just relaxed conversation. It wasn't anything crazy, you know, like a if I never see you again sort of thing. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a, all right, like I love you, you know, and I probably said good luck or something like that. It wasn't anything crazy, but it was just, you know, a last little check-in before she went in. That's great. So she wasn't stressed, which is really good. She probably was a bit stressed, but I just (laughs) maybe don't remember. (laughs) 
<laughs> so when she, so tell me about recovery because the the surgery was actually successful, right? Were there any complications at all? So there was that tiny mismatch thing, which just meant that she was a bit more susceptible to getting sick, and you know I think that maybe slowed her initial recovery a bit. But I think Dad and I were trying to remember, and I'm pretty sure it was the next day that they took out her breathing tubes and things like that, and she was, you know, sitting up in bed. Wow. And Dad remembers that she was immediately so bright and bubbly that he was just thinking, oh, my gosh, what has, like, a miracle has happened. But I think that's probably a combination of, you know, the adrenaline and all of that going on because a few days later she was sore and, you know, just flat and recovering because it's a lot for the body to handle. But it was amazing. She wasn't in hospital for that long. She was in hospital for 10 days. Wow. And then um, they stayed in Sydney for three months for that time, the first month you're going to hospital every single day, they're doing crazy monitoring of your temperature and every single thing to make sure that you're not having any rejection. And then, yeah, I think after that month, it was sort of every couple of days they would be popping into hospital um, and just sort of staying so close by and just being really closely monitored. Your dad must have been thrilled, by the way, but how was your mum taking all of this? Because that's a, it's a pretty big journey, isn't it? Did she embrace that whole rehabilitation process or was was she sort of uh, feeling a bit bruised and battered and, and just struggling to, to recover? I think it was probably a combo. I think the hard thing with organ transplant, especially the major organ transplant like heart and lungs, I think when you've been sick for a really long time and, you know, sometimes for a lot of people, maybe people who don't know much about transplant you think that it's just going to be this magical cure-all and it's just oh it's fine I just get a new pair of lungs all good but that comes with its own challenges and you know there's crazy medication protocols that you have to get right and you have to be consistent with and you know you are immunosuppressed so you're more susceptible to getting sick and getting severely sick so there are extra challenges that come with it so I think it was a lot for her to handle but then also she was able to sort of walk around without being puffed out and things like that so I think it was a combo like it's just a lot for a person to deal with. Did she still have to walk around with the oxygen on her 24-7 or did that uh, no longer have to be used? No it's gone straight away it's so crazy. Wow. <laughs> I don't have to ever listen to that oxygen machine puffing ever again. <laughs> wow. So after that three months in Sydney, she returned home. What was life like from that point? What do you remember of her sort of resuming a more healthy life with with some lungs at work? She still, like I said, she still struggled with her health a bit. That was, you know, she still had to go to the hospital all the time. That's the thing. It's a lot of maintenance. That sounds so bad because it is such a gift, but it's a lot of hard work. And so she had to go to the hospital a lot, a lot of different appointments and had to work up to getting that strength of a normal person back again after being sick for such a long time. Mm. So it was hard and she wasn't able to go back to work and, you know, we had to sort of learn that new normal of she's not super sick anymore, but she's still restricted in a lot of stuff that she can do. But, yeah, she, you know, she would go to the Donate Life gala every year and she wrote letters to her donor's family and things like that she was really that type of person that wanted to sort of give back in that way and make sure that people knew how important it was to sign up to donate your organs in the case that you don't need them anymore Mm, that's great 
So how long did your mum live? She lived for almost nine years, which is really good for a lung transplant in my understanding because a lot of people, it's a great success rate for the first year and then as the years go on, your survival rate decreases. So to make it nine years with the health challenges that she had along the way, she did really well. What what eventually took her away? I think it just got to that point <clears throat> of um, they have almost have a best before date on them. Right. And they she just, you know, started getting sick more often, started getting more sick more often, so more severely sick more often. Um, she did have a few little bouts of rejection. Um, and, yeah, I think she just got unwell at the beginning of 2020. She just got unwell and just didn't come back from it. Hmm. I'm so sorry. Thank you. So if we look at the legacy of your mum, very strong-willed woman who – accomplished some amazing things despite the challenges that she had. When you're thinking of your mum, what makes you proud or what makes you happy when you think of her? When I I think of her, I think of she was always the type of person, the same thing with, you know, writing to the donor's family or going to donating to Donate Life all the time. She was the type of person who every single hospital admission Um, and there were many, 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 many over the years, at the end of every admission she would get us to bring in boxes of chocolates for the nurses or fruit platters and a card and she was that type of person to always do those little things to make sure people felt appreciated and knew that she was grateful and thought of them and despite all of her other challenges, that is something that sticks with me and that she tried her best to make other people happy. Wow, so very generous spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Now, her genetic condition, uh, is there a possibility that you carry that same condition? I think I'm definitely a carrier. I've I've been tested. I believe I've been genetically tested and had my sort of alpha-1 antitrypsin levels tested and I'm all good. Um, it normally skips a generation apparently. So my daughter has been tested as well and she's a carrier but her levels seem to be okay. So that just means that we both have to make sure that we don't start smoking or doing anything intentionally to damage our lungs, I suppose. Right. And just monitor it over time and see that those levels don't change. Yeah. And just be really vigilant of those sorts of things, you know, breathlessness and that sort of thing, I suppose. Yeah. When your daughter gets older, what will you tell her about your mum and the wonderful life that she led and the impact that she had on you? I, I when, even when I talk to her now, obviously my daughter's only two, so she probably doesn't understand what I'm talking about, but I talk about her Grammy, that's what we call her, because we know that she would never have wanted to be called Grandma or Nana. She was definitely the type of person that would have had some kind of weird name. <laughs> so we call her Grammy, and I tell her that, you know, her Grammy, she loved butterflies, she loved the colour purple, she, she drove a car with flowers printed all over it when I was a kid. And she, she is just that type of person and she always made sure that I felt loved and I know that she would have been a great grandparent. Yeah. Sorry. That's okay. It's the one, the one thing that gets me. <laughs> I'm sure your mum, wherever she is now, is looking down and saying you're being a great mum and she's very proud of you. Thank you. What do we 
need to tell people listening to this podcast at the moment about how they can be, uh, how they can get onto the donor register and what they need to do? Because my understanding is that even if you do put your name down uh, to be willing to donate organs if if the circumstance arose, it's still very important to tell your family and friends, isn't it? Because it's ultimately, if if somebody passes away, it's those family and friends who will make that final decision. And so communicating to those family and friends about your wishes is very important. Yeah. So it's not just as simple as ticking that box on your license and suddenly when you die, your organs go to people that need them. You need to make sure that your family know your wishes you know if you've got a will you've got it in your will if you've got power of attorney it's on there making it clear to all of your care providers and also i think on donate life you can sort of sign a register a specific register that's separate to the one that you have for your license i believe um and that's sort of another way to make sure that your wishes are known and you can give that gift to someone here's a big shout out to everybody that's listening if you're not already on the register if you haven't already made that clear to those that you love gosh you know you give the gift to many people that are desperately needing it thanks so much casey lots of love to you your husband and your two-year-old daughter olive thank you thank you for telling these stories as well thanks for listening word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast so if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story please share with family and friends If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor Podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.